The Faith Angle podcast doesn't have an official season two, but after a few weeks off while our growing team worked hard to plan a pair of in-person fall forums for journalists on the West Coast and in Europe, we hope today's episode will feel like a crisp summer breath of fresh air. Joining us are two friends who've known one another professionally and personally for nearly 20 years. One is Brent Orell, who's worked in top legislative and federal positions since arriving in Washington from his home state of Oregon in 1986. Brent's worked as a center-right chief of staff in the U.S. Senate, as a George W. Bush administration official in the White House and Labor Departments, tenaciously helping several federal agencies collaborate more wisely with local community and faith institutions, as an anti-poverty business consultant, and for the last four years as a senior fellow leading a fascinating anti-poverty initiative at the American Enterprise Institute. Brent's podcast, which you can find linked in the show notes, is called Hardly Working, and the research initiative he leads focuses on ex-prisoner reentry, youth job training, and emergent workforce trends. Joining Brent is Fred Davey, a Presbyterian minister and tireless lifelong advocate for racial justice and for those on the margins of society. Just one program Fred led in partnership with Brent from 2003 to 06 helped more than 5,400 former prisoners, all under the age of 34 with a nonviolent, non-sexual felony offense, to pair up with mentors and case managers from local black churches in 17 U.S. cities. The program cut the one-year and three-year recidivism rates in half and was used as a model for a larger federal program that followed. And then, as now, Fred ably juggles multiple commitments. For the last 10 years, he's been executive vice president at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where today he continues to serve as senior strategic advisor. He's also a senior advisor for racial equity at Interfaith Youth Corps. He's a commissioner on the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom, and he's chairman of the New York City Civil Complaint Review Board, as well as a board member on Mayor de Blasio's Racial Justice Charter Reform Commission. Brent worked in President Bush's faith-based office, whereas Fred was an appointee in President Obama's White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. But the two share common goals, and even in rancorous, polarized, coarsening times, their friendship clearly isn't going anywhere. Which is just incredibly refreshing. Stick around to the end on this one, because this is a pair of wise scholar practitioners with a lot to say, from race in America, to the condition of the American church, to the radical, intrinsic beauty of each person's quiet, internal vocational gift, to listening more effectively to political and intellectual opponents, to the unending quest for wholeness and satisfaction in an economic culture, both abundant and uneasy, replete with promise and yet somehow still unsatisfactory. It's a beautiful conversation bridging many lines, and I hope you enjoy it. So Fred, we have been friends now since 2003, Mm -hmm. 2002, 2003. Right. And that's a really long time, actually, when you think about it. And it's the kind of time span that actually you can start to see change, not just in one another, (laughs) uh, which we are, but change around us. And we've both had this long-term concern for the disadvantaged, the disconnected, the 
people on the periphery of American society. Mm-hmm. But we don't come from the same background. We come from very different backgrounds. And uh, you, as an African-American man, I'm sure you see things that I don't see. And this has been such a tumultuous time in American society with George Floyd and with the pandemic and with the resurgence of white nationalism. All It's just been crazy. And I'm really wondering what you think the experience is of younger black men and women growing up now, coming into their adulthood now. What do you think is different now than maybe what we saw 20 years ago? It's an excellent question, I think. And it's great to be with you. Let me just say that. I guess I can say with you and Josh both and, yeah. uh, this morning. It's kind of like a reunion, and that's really good. And you know, I was just thinking, I think maybe we first met right after the skies opened up after 9-11. I actually remember taking a plane from New York to D.C. for a Job Corps conference that the U.S. Department of Labor was sponsoring, and I was speaking in place of my then-boss, Gary Walker. And after I spoke, you came up and introduced yourself, and we've been off to the races, it seems, yeah, ever since, yeah. which is great, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, appreciate the ways in which you've helped us in so many ways over the years, and the opportunity to work with you and Josh both on really sort of important stuff. So, yeah, it's really complex, I think. Clearly, on the one hand, in America, the opportunities to get a good education if you are an African-American young person, go to a good school, and succeed exist in ways that they never have before. In some ways, we have the life that our ancestors dreamed about, and we are the success that they thought about, and those young people are as well. But on the other hand, if you look at some of the statistics, if you listen to some of the Analysts, even if you listen to the young people, it seems like with the rise, as you say, of white nationalism, of course, and just the kind of structural inequities that are baked into our system that we're constantly trying to address, it's really tough for these kids. And that's sort of across the board, whether you, I think, are a young black person who's privileged enough to go to a very elite school you sort of run into th- uh, walls there that you never thought you'd see and you don't quite understand them. Or if you are a young kid who grows up in a public housing project without a lot of opportunities and you suddenly start bumping in the walls, some created by the culture in which you are raised, others created by the larger society, and you don't quite know how to manifest that. So... So you can see it in some of the struggles that are happening on these elite campuses, right, with young black kids trying to be heard and understood and the ways in which those conversations don't happen the way we would hope they would with what has been called sort of cancel culture arising, people being shut down who maybe should have been heard. And then you see it with living in a place like New York City and you watch all of the shootings that are going on now, mm. for example, the what we would call black-on-black crime. Young people, young gang members just rolling out now and just, you know, like killing people in their own neighborhoods for God only knows what reasons. 
so these things are complicated and they're really complex, but I think it behooves all of us who want an ongoing better America to sort of address these kind of root structural systemic mm. causes of all of these things. So the racism that's baked into the system that's unfortunately been here since the founding of the nation that we really have to continue to work at and the kind of values and sense of self that gets internalized that leads people to do very self-destructive things, a good bit of which we're seeing now unfold post-pandemic in a place like New York City. So I just wanted to loop back to something you said about cancel culture, which I think is a real thing. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I do think it would behoove some of the voices that are raising the concerns about cancel culture, particularly on campus, to recognize that the country's leading experts in being canceled are African Americans, mm-hmm. that there has been this history of canceling, canceling, and canceling some more over centuries, mm-hmm. not just over a decade, but over centuries, and that you don't really have to explain cancellation to black Americans. They understand it perfectly. I've really just been struggling with how do we like change the conversation or the, maybe the vocabulary around this so that it's more comprehensible to people who are groups of people who are for the first time encountering that loss of being heard mm-hmm. and are you know shocked to find out what that feels like and what that is it doesn't make it right and there's no i don't think it's helpful except that it does give people a chance to understand some of the limitations and brutality mm-hmm. that has been the central reality of African Americans in the United States for their entire history. So I wrote an essay about this, you know, like thinking about a vocabulary of systemic disadvantage mm. and the way that, say, a young person, a young white person from Appalachia, for instance, encounters systemic disadvantage on a daily basis because of issues of vocabulary, of comportment, of dress, of food, of all these cultural markers that are associated with a low-income white culture that preemptively exclude people actually from being heard, taken seriously, advancing in life, you know, there is an analogy there and that is there some way to kind of change this cultural script that we're locked in to say, look, everybody has a stake in this. It's not just minorities in the United States that face this. It's a substantial piece of the majority that is also struggling with being locked out of opportunity and therefore we all have a stake in working on the problem. Yeah. yeah, that's where we need, I think, leadership. So let's acknowledge the sins of the past, right, that still manifest in the present, but let's not get stuck there. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a national narrative about empathy, mm. you know, about being able to understand where someone else is 
and being able to understand it because we're kind of there too, right? So large numbers of people, as you said, are feeling like they're on the margins, that they are just that one paycheck away from total ruin or that there's just no opportunity for them. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for, since we've mentioned Appalachia, a white family struggling in Appalachia when they see black kids graduating from Harvard, Yale, to think about white privilege. That's a very hard thing, as I understand it, for people who are in those circumstances to get their heads around, right? So it's up to then all leadership, black, white, and otherwise, to recognize that and to help create the kind of national dialogue that will allow for an understanding where another person is and why they might have the perspective they have. And instead, I think what we see are the opportunists who are exploiting those fears for, and we don't have to go too far down this Mm -hmm. road, but for just simply personal political gain. And sometimes financial gain. And financial gain, exactly, which is outrageous. And really, I think in the long run, serves no one well. Yeah, so we could have a common agenda around the sort of fears and anxieties that we all share, the ways in which the structures and systems and enculturation and culture, et cetera, have created these situations for us, and then what we all can do as a kind of national agenda to try to overcome them. If we had that kind of, seems to me, dialogue with the kind of leadership behind it, then we might be able to get at some of this stuff. I uh, wonder if you might reflect a little bit Mm -hmm. on the task of the journalist in that regard, because everybody has their own institutional uh, place in which to operate, live, work, and you guys have each been in roles where you're shaping policy and helping to lead academic, higher educational, theological educational institutions and you know, writing and doing intellectual work. But the journalists, some of the journalists who do listen to this podcast have another desk and have to navigate some of those questions you're just describing, what tone to take. Fred and I were talking just a little bit earlier about how if you live in a big city like New York, you're probably a minority. You know, if you live in the Midwest, you're probably not a minority if you're white. And so this idea that the theme of pluralism has been a big topic in these run of conversations. And and how is it that the norms of being a cultural minority, whether it's race or socioeconomic status or otherwise, how is it that the norms of cultural minorityhood impact the way in which you engage others, whether in your writing as a journalist or whether in your life in a city? How is it that the experience of being a cultural minority, increasingly common to more of us, tees up what you're describing? I think, you know, out of a desire, obviously, always to hold up the principle of freedom of when it comes to journalists in the media, you don't want to cancel them and you don't want to you don't want to say that there's things that they perhaps shouldn't write about. So given that, I do think that they have journalists need to be a part of this sort of national project, too. So this is a great experiment I think we have with this sort of democratic, small-D democratic society that we're trying to create here in this country that's pretty fragile, as we've seen. And so if journalists are committed 
to ensuring that we have a society and culture where there can be this freedom of the press that we all like to see, then what's their stake in this as well? That would be one piece of this. I think, and then I think we should perhaps look at places like New York City, which is where I think if you look at it, probably everybody now in New York City, every subgroup is a minority, including people of color. That's where the country's going, right? In the next 50 years, there'll be no majority. You know, everybody will, will have a plurality. It will be a percentage of the population and not a majority. What would a place like New York tell us about how we have to sort of coexist together? It's fascinating to live in New York, right? So on the one hand, the statisticians and the experts say it's one of the most racially segregated cities in the country, and it breaks down mainly around economics. You won't know it from being there, from living there, because you just by virtue of your everyday living, you have to mix it up with a bunch of different people, whether it's crowding on the subway, which is beginning to happen again post-COVID, or just walking down a sidewalk. And there are very few places you can go, even places that are a majority of one particular race or ethnicity or another, still the streets tend to be more diverse than perhaps the houses are once the lights are out at night, right? So on the one hand, journalists should be a part of this experiment, should want to see it thrive, experiment in democracy and pluralism. And then they can look at places where it seems to be working, you know, with some fits and starts, and really, I think, help promote it. You know, unfortunately, we can see lots of journalists who are simply fanning the flames around what's the worst in the society, things that aren't going to lead to this experiment being the really success that we, of democracy that we really want it to be. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see journalists sort of committed to supporting and advancing this kind of democratic experiment we have here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a couple of thoughts just to expand on what Fred is saying. I think journalists need to be very careful not to either purposefully or inadvertently feed the divisions. The purposeful ones, I'm not sure we have much hold over <laughs> because of what we were talking about earlier. I mean, I think it's just part of the brand and it's we're going to division, we're going to multiply by dividing people from one another and I'm not sure exactly what to do about that, but I do think that journalists that are well-intended, they don't have to be perfect, they, you know, that are well-intended, that can model fairness and empathy in the way that they conduct themselves can make a huge contribution. The obvious example that comes to mind is the conversation podcast from New York Times that Ross Douthat was on. I think he must be taking a break right now. Jane Koston, I think, is on with people coming at issues from very different perspectives and attempting to communicate across those perspectives to, I always think of it as making your adversary's best argument rather than their worst, addressing what it is that their best point on any particular issue 
and trying to understand that rather than going for the cheap win of saying, well, this is where you are obviously wrong. We all know where we're obviously wrong. And, you know, that's not hard to find. What's harder to deal with is where the people that you disagree with are right and grapple with that in a meaningful way. So that's sort of one thought is like encouraging that kind of dialogue across ideological and philosophical lines among journalists I think would be extremely useful. I wonder if there are enough actual listening conservative journalists to do that. Uh, It's not a field that conservatives find their way into often enough, I think. So that's sort of one issue. But the other thing is this can't just be an elite dialogue. And that's where the modeling for the public, the listening public or the reading public comes in, is the elites are committed, I think, on both sides, especially the journalistic world uh, and that I'm thinking of right now. They're committed to the idea of reason, the Cartesian worldview of facts and reason and dialogue. That is not broadly shared anymore. And so the challenge of rebuilding the idea of a shared knowledge base, of a shared set of assumptions, of a shared set of facts, I think is just enormously difficult. And I'm not sure actually how elite culture can help with that. I'd be interested if anybody else has ideas about how elite culture can help with it. Well, I think elite culture can certainly destroy it. And we've seen that when institutions and other agents of knowledge or agencies of knowledge that we once held sacred and in high regard are simply grossly disrespected and disparaged. There has to be sort of respect for these what should be legitimate sources of information, you know, and when they are called into question for less than noble reasons, it becomes a disservice to everyone. And and what the elites then do is create a situation where the rest of the public society aren't clear what's going on. And then you've created a context where people can be exploited and manipulated for not, again, not so noble ends. And I think we've seen a lot of that. Yeah, there was a fascinating piece over the weekend in The Atlantic. I don't know the author. It wasn't a name that I'd seen before, but it was all about on vaccine hesitancy, why people are so dug in. And, you know, we've talked about, oh, you know, the elites, they don't show respect. They don't, you know, engage in meaningful dialogue with non-elites. And that's the problem. And she took a very different tact on this to say, you know, what it really actually is, is that people have been conned. Mm -hmm. They've had a big con run on them and they have bought into that con And backing away from the con means acknowledging that you've been conned. And that is psychologically very painful to say, I was taken, I was deceived. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I think there is something powerful in that. And I think it's amplified, actually, 
by the fact that you now have communities that are conned, mm-hmm. you know, entire states that are conned, right, right. <laughs> right? And that creates a plausibility structure that is, it's like cement. I mean, how do you get out of it? Everybody that you know believes the same thing, the same con, and there's not just psychological cost to backing away from the con, but there's cost in relationships because you try to get out of that bucket and somebody's going to grab you by the ankle and pull you back in and punish you if you do get out. So this is a quagmire for American society that is deeply alarming. It has no clear escape route, not because of the facts, but just because of these commitments that we all make. We all do this. We're all trapped in a bubble of one kind or another. But this is a particularly pernicious one that a large 30, 40% of the country is struggling with. You might even say that about our politics too, right? And the way we we choose to pull the lever, the number that actually shifts in the middle isn't all that large. But I wonder if I could ask a question about religion because it strikes me that one – setting where sometimes there is breakthrough or openness, even after the age of 30, when most people have sort of figured out who they are, one area that occasionally does bridge some of these lines and have left and right, though not enough, is our congregations. And one area where sometimes you do have spirit-led breakthrough that doesn't come in advance according to the script that you knew is religion. And and so I, I've observed Fred deepening in his work in the seminary space, work with Interfaith Youth Corps, work with various interfaith groups, especially in recent years. And Fred, I know, excuse me, and Brent, I know you're a person of faith as well. And you guys work together to sort of make possible some public policy work that involved faith congregations leading some of this work. What do you think about the role of, of religion in this priority? Sure, sure. Let me just say a word about the comments Brent just made, and then uh, so I can transition into sort of a conversation about religion and faith. But maybe one of the silver linings in people, as difficult as it is, recognizing that they've been conned, is that they'll be more healthily skeptical next time around. It must create serious, I would think, cognitive dissonance, that's an elite phrase, for people who are now watching the very people who disparage, for example, the vaccine, telling them to take it as they watch hospitalizations and even deaths sort of spike. So even the kind of most rigidly ideological person will, you know, have some level of sort of skepticism about people who are now in short order, reversing course from what they last said to them. And perhaps that will lead to a question, a healthy questioning mm-hmm. of demagoguery or strictly kind of ideological approaches to things. So we'll see how that plays out. But maybe. And I'll just add that that's exactly what the author of this piece said, mm-hmm. interviewing kind of social psychologists saying, what's, what is the way out? And the way out is actually to have voices that were previously affiliated with the position, you know, to come in and say, I was, if I wasn't wrong, at least I've 
come to a new understanding of what the facts are. So it's so much more important to have, say, the governor of Alabama say you really need to get vaccinated than it is to have the New York Times editorial page say that. That's just not one, even if it doesn't fix it, is undermining the con while the other just reinforces it. On your question, though, Josh, about religion, I think that Christians across millennia have always been discouraged by the church. I mean, the church is it's a disaster zone and it always so you know come on in it's awful you know it's <laughs> <laughs> you know so the church is always always in rocky shape its human elements are problematic and they always are even having said that i just am astonished at how badly the church is behaving and I don't want to descend into what do they call argumentum Hitlerum, ad Hitlerum, you know, that everything, whenever we've got a really bad problem, we look at Nazi Germany and say, well, here it is, you know, this is, but there is some astonishing parallels, echoes of what happens when the church falls in with totalitarian ideology. And I have to say that that is extremely alarming to kind of see the way that the church in Germany embraced Nazism. You know, we, we, we want to believe that Bonhoeffer was the guy and this is what, you know, the believing church, the confessing church was actively opposed. But it was a fragment of a fragment of a fragment of the church. Overwhelmingly, it the church – out of its alarm over changing cultural conditions, you know, the fear of the disorder that they saw rising around them said, at least these guys are going to keep things in line. And that's what I see going on in the church. I see a lot of panic and fear in the direction, some of the directions that culture is heading. And the church, rather than living on the basis that this is what Jesus said cultures do, this is what cultures do. They go bad, right? And frankly, it's been going bad for a really long time. I would not trade the America of today for the America of 1950. No way. The sin the destruction of the human person that was going on in 1950 was every bit as bad as what we see happening in terms of the destruction of the human person now. It's just changed shapes on us. And so our faith tells us that this is what's going to happen. And that is not our main concern. Our main concern is bringing people to an understanding of God and recognizing that it is not the church's job to try to save a culture. Anyway, that's sort of first draft off the top of my head, but I I don't think it's the church's job to save a culture. The church's job is to serve other human beings in a sacrificial way. So I'm sounding very pessimistic because I am very pessimistic. I don't really think the church has much to offer or most of the church has much to offer. There are pockets 
of people trying to act responsibly in this moment. What's going on out at McLean Bible right now is, frankly, just astonishing in terms of a pastor who's dared to broach to a megachurch that maybe there's something to the systemic racism thing that we need to pay attention to, and it's exploding. So this is a wealthy, (laughs) well-educated, you know, congregation. This isn't, you know, uh, 200 people in in a church in Arkansas. This is suburban D.C., and yet that's how far gone, I think, in terms of the way that the culture, the concern over the culture, the culture of conflict itself has kind of penetrated the church. So I, I'm dubious, actually, about the ability of most congregations to participate meaningfully in this. Yeah. Can I flip that to Fred? Because it just strikes me that— uh, I mean, that's, you, a, you that's a conservative Christian view, or a view of the conservative Christian church. Right. It may look different for you. You mentioned Bonhoeffer, and I just remember— you know, I think maybe Fred describing this a couple of decades ago, how, you know, when he came to Union Seminary as a student, he did study there for a bit, but he mostly spent a lot of time over at Abyssinia Baptist Church. Bonhoeffer did. Yeah. That's exactly he, right. He, he, yeah. he, didn't, he yeah. didn't sort of go where the he was really, powers He was be. really interested in the, the black church in right. America. And the and struggle. The, and the struggle. And, yeah. and, and like the Pentecostal spirit-led. Mm-hmm. Yes. Worship yeah. and and theology yeah. that they espoused. Even then, Bonhoeffer felt union was too elite, and uh, that there was something missing from its both worship experience, its faith life, and its theology, mm-hmm. which he found in the spiritual life of the people in Harlem who were struggling, right, against powers and principalities, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we could do this all day, right? right? But that's exactly where faith should be. That's exactly where the church should be. And I, I fear that the sort of take the conservative white Christian church in America, speaking very broadly and very generally, it has over centuries aligned itself with a notion, right, of what God's kingdom looks like. And that's been a very Americanized version white Americanized version of God's kingdom. And suddenly, it's not working anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not headed that way. And it never would. It, ne- it won't head that way if we had described it in Latino terms or black terms or indigenous American terms. That is a worse form of idolatry. It's bound to fall apart. In my life as a Christian, you know, one of the surefire... Applause lines or nodding or guffawing that you could always rely on was to bring up the social gospel. Hmm. You know, ah, the social gospel. You know, they emptied the church of transcendence and then the church has died. And isn't this just, you know, nonsense, the social gospel? So I want to ask the question now like, who are the social gospelists? The social gospelists are actually on the right now around a very narrow set of particular concerns that have everything to do with society and not much to do with spirituality. So the social gospel preachers that we've got now are fire and brimstone 
conservatives and not left liberal progressives. And the church is being consumed by this culture, this new social gospel that, like I said, is pernicious and destructive. Right. You know, it's going to, it's one of the challenges that I always put to the students at Union who are graduating is it's pretty clear that the institutional churches we know it, maybe institutional religion, period, is dead. I mean, it's just a matter of time, but those, it's not working anymore. Mm-hmm. But God is not dead, and the yeah. Spirit is not dead. <laughs> so how are you going to give communal expression to the Spirit of the living God? How are you going to do it? Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. You know, there's a lot of hope in that, but it's, you know, there's also a lot of fear in it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, whether the, the one of the prophets said to one of the manifestations of the Hebrews in, in the Hebrew Bible, a remnant shall return. But what's going to happen to everybody else? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. You know? Um, but I do believe that the institutional religion as we know it not only has to give way, it, is, it has almost given way or is giving way. It's a result of, I think, its own conflation of a particular expression of society and culture with mm-hmm. its understanding of faith. Yeah. As I said before, it'll never work. Yeah. What it does provide, perhaps, is an opportunity to, one, get at the core what it means to be a person of faith, across faith, too. What's the best of my tradition that I want to promote, and what of that tradition is going to contribute to sort of mutuality and respect in and among and between human beings? And given the challenges that we're facing— with this sort of human existence on this planet, how can I take the best of my faith tradition and apply it to this situation in hopes that I'm living out what God wants me to live out of the Spirit or whatever that transcendent thing is that keeps me going day to day by working on this project to save this planet from its ills. Mm. If enough of those folks can be galvanized to sort of pull at this together, then maybe we can make a go of this. But as, as far as these institutions themselves, I think they're done. You know, Union Seminary is not the seminary it was in 1836 or in 1955, nor should it be. In fact, it's an interreligious institution these days. It's committed to the best of what that means. Um, it is not necessarily a Christian theological seminary has a lot of stuff to work through around that. There is no reason necessarily that these institutions should survive mm. if they're not, you know, serving the greater good, if they're not, in the Christian terms, serving the gospel. Why should they survive? I'm curious to ask about that, because in New York, we were talking about earlier, I think David Kim once said, you can't talk about the Christian gospel in New York City if you don't talk about work. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. everybody works, yeah. like a lot, you know. Uh, yeah. And right. and uh, you have a podcast, Brent, about this. I know, mm-hmm. hardly working. Can you just maybe explain that concept uh, mm-hmm. to our listeners? You can find that podcast. But how do you guys envision the sort of correlation between authentic faith and vocation? Wow, that's a great question. You know, my project since being at AEI has been about trying to come up with a language around vocation that is 
comprehensible to both people of faith and people of not faith. The little group that I lead is called Vocation, Career, and Work at AEI, and we start with vocation, and we anchor this idea in what does it mean to be human, that human beings need to work so that they can express themselves and find that resource of meaning and purpose that work provides. And there's a question mark over all of that, which is why should we care? And for me, faith answers that question because this is the way God made us. But you don't have to. It could be because this is good for you and it will promote your own well-being and happiness. That's all you have to sign up for when we talk about an idea of vocation. What I find alarming in American life in regard to this is that we approach work in purely instrumental terms because of what it does to sustain us economically. And then we work backwards from that into questions of education. And any undergrad who has faced this question across the Thanksgiving table, particularly an undergrad who's, say, working on a history degree or sociology or psychology, to answer the questions, well, what are you going to do with that? There's this very instrumental view of education that takes over our thinking about education and work. And we wonder why people reach their 30s, 40s, and 50s and then have an existential crisis because they never ask the question, what am I built for? Not what am I going to do to sustain myself economically, but what am I actually built to do? What is the thing that I have to do because it's – I can't not do it. Uh, What is the thing that is internally and intrinsically motivating that I would get up and get out of bed to do this, whether I got paid to do it or not? And that's not the end of the conversation, but I really think it has to be the beginning when when we're talking about vocation. We need a dialogue with our students. We also need a dialogue with people who are mid-career whatever, but that question needs to be in the forefront of people's minds, again, not as the end, but as the beginning of the dialogue. So then once I have identified, well, this is what actually gets me going, how am I going to adapt that to the market? Again, there isn't necessarily going to be a direct connection, but how am I going to adapt those interests and those abilities, those passions? Passion has become a dirty word when it comes to career, it's like people just roll their eyes. It's absolutely vital you, that you have to be you have to be juiced by what you are doing in order to make it sustainable. And there's no shame in that. In fact, that's a function of who we are as human beings. So that's what I think is lost right now in terms of the way that we think about education, about what it means to be a person about gifting, about a desire to serve. That's where all of that psychic income that is so important to our happiness and our well-being comes from. And so flipping this conversation, anybody out there who's listening, who's got kids in high school and kids in college, don't ask what they want to do. 
Ask them who they are. Watch, observe them. What is it that they will do just because it's there and because that is the thing that's fascinating? And then think about, all right, how can I support the development of that and encourage that trusting and believing that in the wealthiest society in human history, the the economics are going to work out for them. That's anyway. what makes this yeah. sort of the anxiety that's driving people to pursue degrees and careers that don't speak to who they are, that aren't so giving, so ironic that we do live probably in the wealthiest nation that the world has ever known. And there clearly is enough here. It's just that we get convinced by the purveyors of these notions that if we don't have certain things, material things, we're incomplete as human beings. And nothing could be further from the truth that we're complete as human beings if we don't deal with sort of our spiritual, psycho-emotional dimensions. And then we can give expression to that through the kind of work we choose to do, which will sustain us in our basic needs at a minimum, but probably far beyond that, if we can trust that. But again, we have so built these idols and now one around what work's supposed to mean, or many around what work's supposed to mean, that aren't life-giving, aren't life-sustaining, and they don't last. So they end up creating anxiety, and then we sort of start digging ourselves deeper into the morass as opposed to looking for ways to get out of it. But I couldn't agree with you more to those mothers and fathers whose kids are about to go off to college encourage them to find out what they're built for, find out where their passion is. And don't be afraid of that. You know, just kind of trust, again, that it is the wealthiest nation in the world can provide places and opportunities for those passions to be lived out. And the data I will point to on the on the sustainability, economic sustainability of that is that if you ask employers— What's missing in the workforce these days? They'll give you a list of 10 items, and eight of those will have nothing to do with any kind of technical skill or knowledge. It'll all be in this domain of non-cognitive capacities. Can you communicate well? Can you work in teams? Can you persevere in a task? Do you have grit for this is the big lie, I think, that is being foisted from a education and training standpoint is, like, we just need to credential people. If we get them credentialed, then they'll have something they can do. Again, going back to that very utilitarian view of education. But that's not actually what's needed in the workforce. I just keep telling students, any students who will listen to me, build yourself up as a person and you won't have any problem with your career. Yeah, I couldn't agree uh, with you. It, and the, the data is really conclusive on this. You know, we've, we hear a lot actually from the left and the right on this about learn to code or we don't need so many philosophers. We need plumbers. You know, it's like, okay, 
A, that's not true. The, these intangible skills are actually the ones that have the highest payoff in the market is – I always talk about this in terms of it's like a triad. You need really good basic skills, literacy and numeracy at a very high level. I'm not – and this is – I'm not talking about you know being able to add and subtract. I'm talking about you need to understand how mathematics works or you need to be very skilled at communication written and and oral communication you need to hone those things so that's the f- the first leg is that kind of literacy numeracy at a high level the second thing you need is technological fluency you don't need to be a programmer what you need to know you need to be comfortable working with high end high tech you know, both software and hardware. You just need that. That's the tool of the future, you know, that you need to pay attention to. And then the third thing are non-cognitive skills, which is, again, you know, this panoply of difficult-to-define kind of implicit rather than explicit skills that allow you to navigate human relationships because that's the one thing that we can't automate. Everything else can be automated, but you can't automate human connection. And so if you have those three things, you are set. And it doesn't really matter whether you get that as a, in a philosophy program or in a science program. But if you've got those three things, you're good. And they all could lead to jobs in all of these industries that we see emerging, new industries But those things can't become ends in and of themselves because they will be wickedly disappointing and dissatisfying Mm -hmm. and unfulfilling. Mm -hmm. That the means that those things provide should be used for higher ends. Again, opportunities for one's own personal development, but the ways in which one helps to develop and create opportunities for other people as well who have not had the same advantages. So I'm working on a little essay right now about – it's a term I had not run into before, homo reciprocon, mm. you know, that we have a homo economicus, the, the utility maximizing human being, which is part of who we are. Uh, there's no sense in denying that and it's there for a reason that we need that in order to survive. But we also need – this other half of our nature, which is this reciprocal side, the the side of mutuality in order to survive and thrive. And so what Homo economicus can't account for that. We need other categories to account for it, and it needs to be recognized and valued as every bit as a critical to human survival and flourishing as our utility maximizing side. As your old colleague Arthur Brooks used to talk about needing to be needed, mm-hmm. as our friend Kurt Thompson, former Faith Angle speaker, sometimes talks about, it's the idea of every baby is born looking for someone, looking to call me by name, mm-hmm. or at least that that idea exists mm-hmm. in friendships for the yeah, most part. Yeah, it's the idea that you need other people to even know that you exist. Yeah, you so. know, there is no... The idea of a person as a blank slate, you know, it just doesn't exist. Your mind can only develop in relationship to other minds. So it's built into our nature and we assume it. 
That's the thing. It's not that anybody would deny this, but they never stop to think about it. Does it apply to pluralism? I know I'm a one-note kid today, but, you know, know, I'm struck by the fact that you guys each answered that question about vocation, thinking about the sort of idolatries that are accidental along the way. Mm -hmm. We all have them. And that's really the best way to describe them. But is it also the case that in New York City, you were talking about earlier in the context of sort of racial inequities in the country, but yet pluralism sort of happening right, that with pluralism, you've got lots of people around. That that has to motivate, instead of withdrawal or isolation, it tends to motivate engagement. It tends to motivate curiosity, or at least it can, and humility and empathy and all the things you're describing. Is pluralism part of the larger quest task here, you think, Fred? I think the best way I can answer that question, or the the way I'll answer it, is that pluralism is inevitable, right? It's just here. It's what's happening on this earth. And how it unfolds, how it works out, is going to depend on what values we're pursuing. So we can easily destruct if we are engaged in a zero-sum game around everything we do. And that my either I or me and my group have to get ours, and we're, we see everybody else as a threat to that. It'll thrive, pluralism will thrive if we can have as our pursuit something greater than just simply material conference and more and more, more and more of them. If the pursuit is, look, first of all, I'm here, and so I want to try to create an environment that's conducive for everyone to thrive and flourish in because just out of pure self-interest, that really is going to be best for me too. But it's also going to be best for my kids, and I want to leave something behind that they can be proud of that shows that I was concerned about them and that I care for them and care for who comes in my wake. If those are the values that these varieties of human expression are pursuing, then this thing will work. But it could easily become a war where we are fighting each other over who's going to have the most, the most power, the most money, or... To think about it another way, if you look at how wealth is concentrated in a few hands around the globe, then we could be fighting over scraps as opposed to, again, engaging in a project that says, how do we create a society where things are more equitably shared? And again, opportunity sort of exists for everybody that wants to take advantage of it. And for those that don't, we're encouraging them to and finding ways to do that. So, I, you know, the, the jury's out. From journalists to preachers to politicians, got to decide what's important and then sort of promote and pursue that. Otherwise, you know, we could easily devolve into just You know, warring madness is one of the hymns that's famous for saying, and this thing, particularly this American thing, could could easily fall apart. Yeah, I mean, as I was listening to Fred talk, I was thinking about the problem of coercion and this desire that human beings exhibit, unfortunate desire, to give up on persuasion 
and to opt for coercion to get where they want to go. I think that's, again, that's a, it's an accelerating trend, I think, and we see this in big ways and small ways all the time of here in Washington, D.C., where we, you know, we trade presidential administrations and we've lost the capacity for dialogue and compromise around, you know, issues that people feel very passionately about. And instead, we say, you know what, I'm just going to load this into a reconciliation bill where I can get 50 plus one will get me what I want, will get my agenda through and kind of jam the opposition. That's a bad habit to get into. And it's not violent per se, but it is an expression of this coercive tendency which I think the founders were really concerned about. They knew that this is the way that we were that we were built. And that's why we needed to divide power and force people to try to accept a half a loaf rather than getting everything that they want. So yeah, pluralism is important and it needs to be I mean, I just feel like this is a fight that I encounter all the time, which is a preference for shortcutting the pluralistic process through some sort of coercive mechanism, opting for power rather than persuasion. Well, that gives us a lot to chew on. Thank you both so much, Brent and Fred. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great, indeed. Thank you. Faith Angle connects mainstream journalists with scholar practitioners and religious clerics through conversations like this one, in-person forums, and special gatherings for journalists under the age of 35, whose early careers demonstrate promise. Thanks for listening.